Mitch Larson's parents were an academic and a nurse, and his life growing up in Melbourne was pretty conventional, even aspirational. Leafy suburb, prestigious high school, got married, had a child. He worked as a lawyer for a while, but he always felt a bit like a square peg in a round hole. He wanted a career, he says, that would meld his intellect, creativity and physicality and give him a sense of autonomy. He found it, and he says going into sex work was the best decision of his life. What was it like, though, to make that choice? Mitch Larson, welcome. Thank you very much, Hilary. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. How did you see life playing out for you when you were growing up? Did you always see that kind of straight-down-the-line trajectory? No, never. Not since I grew up, actually. Um, there's a funny story my dad told about me. He threatened me if I didn't do something properly, he'd send me off to live in the milk bar up the road. And to his surprise... I wanted to. I packed my bag and I was ready to go. So I've always been sort of fiercely independent and always keen to try new things. So that's been since childhood, actually. And so your dad was an academic in the same institution for like three or four decades and your mum had this pretty stable career. Yep. How did you kind of hopscotch through life when you left school? Well, I just did the usual thing of getting a degree. So I got my behavioural science degree and that sort of opened the doors to a sales role, strangely enough. So I sold software for a while. So I was in that for a fair bit and then moved over to working in mobile phones. So I ran a few mobile phone shops. So it was mainly sales. And from there, I just sort of started bouncing around there. I I took my huge motorcycle ride around the country and and uh, things took off from there. So this is a 25,000 kilometre trip that you took thinking, I don't know what I want to do, I'm just going to ride my motorbike for a while. Yeah, I often did that. I often really loved the freedom of, of riding a motorbike and just the idea of just this picking a destination and, and going really appealed to me. So I quit my job at the time and I wanted to circumnavigate the whole country, including Tasmania. So three months and 25,000 kilometres later, I was back home again. And did you have any clarity about where you wanted to head after that when you'd done that? Yeah, that's when I, I thought about doing law, mainly for the reasons that, you know, it obviously pays fairly well. It's prestigious, sort of requires a lot of reading and I loved reading. So I came back and, and applied for a Juris Doctor and went through with that. And it made your parents really happy for a while. <laughs> yes, yes, for a little while. But as I write in my book, you know, they, 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 don't, they say I'm never boring anyway. So, and I try not to be boring. So for that little moment, yes, when I was engaged and a lawyer and a happy little family, everything was just peachy for them. Yeah. yeah. So you were engaged, you got married, you had a child, your wife was a doctor. So, you know, that's, yep. a, that's a pretty good household. It is, uh, yeah. From a parental point of view, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, what changed? You, you decided you didn't want to do law anymore. Why? Well, I moved to regional New South Wales to practice um, and there's obviously much uh, a, a big need for, for doctors there. So we went over there but unexpectedly fell pregnant. So um, it just made sense for, you know, I was just starting out on a fairly low salary that you do in, in law. Um, so it just made sense for me to sort of put that on break, on a break and then uh, raise my, my little fella for, for about three to four years. How'd that go for you? Because for someone who likes jumping from thing to thing and novelty, there's, there's not much of that at the playground, is there? No, it was really, really hard, to be honest. Just as you say, like the playground, it's just days when you're just just waiting and looking at the clock and and just hoping your partner will come home soon so you can just get some time to yourself, you know, and I'm sure every mother out there can relate to that sort of feeling. And I was, I I really did feel quite trapped and sunk into many deep depressions during that time. Well, and you're very honest in the book about your bipolar diagnosis and having struggled with your mental health, but do you feel that that was, I don't know, affecting your decision-making at the time? I think it's a hard job regardless whether we, whether you have mental health issues or not. It, it, it is very 
very tiring. You know, you know, you just don't have privacy. You don't have time for yourself. So I think I was probably a little bit more susceptible to, to depression than most, maybe, based on the diagnosis. But I wouldn't say that's the sole reason why things were difficult. That's for, that's for sure. We're speaking with Mitch Larson, and this is part of a series that we're calling Leap, about these big pivot points where you just make this huge decision and your entire life swings around onto a different axis. And that's certainly what happened for Mitch. It's not his real name, but it was the name he used in his line of work. He's written a book about it too called Time for Her, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it's interesting, Mitch, to, to read how in your, your articles that you've written and in the book how you talk about your relationship was changing at that time too. Tell us a little bit about what was happening for you too. When we came back to Melbourne from living in New South Wales, we were going through a bit of a tough time, uh, as most marriages do, and our you know, my libido was fairly high. I was sort of sitting at home hoping for validation at the end of the day, as, as a lot of people can relate to. And it caused, you know, a little bit of conflict between us. And at that point, I cheated, but not physically. I, I was approached and I'd like for a better word than, than seduced, but, you know, I started conversing with a, a, a fellow mother from a childcare centre and my wife found out and it was just as devastating for her as a physical affair would have been. And I felt, I felt terrible, but it did expose the, the differences in our sex drives. So I, rather than you know, I was, I was quite honest to her and I don't don't like anyone that cheats. So I, I asked her if I could, you know, see somebody else, just, yeah, if we could have an open marriage. And she, after a lot of research, she agreed. So do you feel that she was up for that herself too? Or is it more like, well, if this can make this work between us, then I'll go for it? I think so, yeah. Um, she, she, she didn't want it. I'm, I have no doubts about that. But being scientific, she she read a whole lot of papers about it. She researched the the, the possibility of the viability of it actually succeeding. And she she said yes. So and and I knew at the time too that that involves her seeing somebody else as well. So that's something that I made sure that I was open to, and it, it, that did hurt, but it hurt her as well. So it's just kind of a a mutual sort of agreement that we both had permission to do something. And it's good these days that there's more information around about the, the kind of ethical principles behind non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy that is available to research and uh, maybe somewhat less stigma. It's a little unclear. It depends, I guess, where you're, you're living. Yeah. But that woman that you were flirting with via text, Mitch, she planted a seed, didn't she? She did, yeah. She just mentioned that I was a very sexual sort of person and she was just, and she said the words to me, Were you have you been a stripper or an escort before? And... I didn't think much of it at the time, but as with anything, any sort of idea that you have, it sort of bounces around in the back of your head for a little while. And the thought of becoming a male escort popped into my head and and, and, uh, I took it from there. So why was it so appealing to you? Because you've written about a few kind of factors that influenced you. Tell us. First thing is it wasn't about the sex. I need people to be clear on that. Obviously, I enjoy sex, as a lot of people do. So that was, I suppose, a bonus. But yeah, I, I believe the job would allow me to further use my, my skills, my interpersonal skills and the training that I had in psychology and that sort of thing to to be, to be play a sort of therapeutic sort of role for, for ladies out there. So that was the main thing. And the money was incidental as well. Um, I did really enjoy bringing, bringing home money finally for the house because I was a photographer before that and getting jobs and the pay for that sort of thing was was pretty low. It was um, pretty demeaning sometimes. So, you know, I felt really good about myself that I could actually bring some income into the household. 
And it's, you've written too about the sense of autonomy, you know, that you were, you were uh, not only being a bit more of a breadwinner and, um, but having some independence for yourself, I guess. Yeah, definitely. That's right. Yeah, I felt like I was, you know, it sounds very archaic, but being the man of the house a little bit more and just really contributing and, and contributing to the lives of others too. Now, you're saying that it's not about the sex. Is that because you'd, you'd kind of dealt with the mismatch between you and your wife's sex drives at the time? We did actually. At the time when I started, it did appeal to her actually. She liked the idea of other women finding me attractive. So the, our our relationship actually had a sort of second honeymoon at that stage, which was really nice. But I wouldn't say that the sex involved in the job was a result of you know any sort of indifference of sex between me and my, my wife. So I'd, I'd probably say no to that one. It was really interesting to read how you know, you, you're saying that you thought it might be, the job might be more about your skills as a lover and the physical intimacy, but it was much much more than that, wasn't it, for the women that came to see you? Yeah, very much so. And it, it surprised, I think, me as well as the clients that came to see me. I think a lot of them, well, most people, firstly, they didn't, they didn't know male escorts existed, so they, that was a surprise to them. And then I believe a lot of them didn't realise the extent of talking that was involved and how, how much of a relief for them it could be just to be in a non-judgmental completely free environment to talk about their whole lives, what brought them to see me and what they needed from me. And then, you know, so that that was roughly 80% of it. And then when the time was right and if they were comfortable enough, then we could take it further. That was interesting too, that you say that a lot of women were really found it hard to tell you what they wanted and they kept checking in with you that you were okay. They did, yeah. As as is always the case, you know, ongoing enthusiastic consent is essential and even more so when you're doing it as a profession. But the women who saw me were very nervous, just, you know, I couldn't understand why that would be, but, you know, because I was the one that had to sort of appeal to them. But they just wanted, they often checked in with me and said, am I doing this right or would you like me to do this better? And, and, and I believe it was good because it was sort of a learning curve for them and I could give them the sort of confidence to go out into the dating world armed with some sort of sexual knowledge, for want of a better word. So, Do you think they might have been nervous too because, I mean, a lot of women have been raised being judged on how they look, their appearance or their lives and also to be a little bit worried about being in a room with a strange man. Yes. Were they anxious about that, do you think? Were, oh, were you able to make so. them feel safe? Oh, absolutely, very much so. I think the nerves begin when they send that first email or they send that first text. So I, I made it a condition that we would speak on the phone beforehand just to start e- sort of easing it into the whole process so they could get to know me, put a voice to the pictures and things like that. And then when it came to actually meeting you know, I often had clients visibly shaking, could barely talk, but a simple hug, a really, a really sort of heartfelt, warm hug, would often get rid of a lot of a lot of issues. Asking them if they, you know, if if I looked okay to them, just checking in with them and making sure that they were okay was probably my main main way of making them feel a bit better. Yeah. So, what do you feel it says about you know the relationships, the quality of relationships these women were in, or the quality of heterosexual dating culture that they were so unused to being able to talk about themselves and what they wanted and so much more worried about how their partner was going. Yeah, I think communication in general in relationships is something that needs to be worked on. Um, Men in particular need to be able to express themselves a lot more or even just recognise when maybe they're not doing enough and just the little things that they can do like a a little hug in the morning or make them a coffee or a kiss at night, that sort of thing um, can really sort of start to open up the, the, the communication lines and a lot of the the ladies that I saw hadn't hadn't had that for decades. So to have just a, a genuine 
heartfelt concern ear or a shoulder to cry on was was something they haven't experienced for a long time. Or having someone say, do you like this? Yeah. What would you like me to do? What gets yeah. you off? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. It's just, just checking in with them instead of just, you know, people just jumping into it five minutes later, jumping out of it again. It's like, no, nah, it's time for them to sort of have a really good time and express how they want to do things too. So, yeah. So we're speaking with Mitch Larson, who made this big decision after, uh, I guess, a lifetime of trying new things and, you know, being quite good at them, uh, to go into sex work, to become a male escort. He's written about that time in his life in a book called Time for Her, and, and you can find his articles online as well. Let's talk a little bit about how it went day to day, Mitch. How did you balance it with being the primary carer for your kid? It was very difficult, actually. We did finally separate, and it probably took us about six to eight months to do that, but we didn't realise how much the job would actually take off. And I spoke to my wife about it, and she admitted she thought it'd just be a little bit of a side hustle, and I thought the same thing. But gradually, the inquiries just kept coming in and became more and more frequent, and I ended up sort of working three to four days a week, or nights a week, or whatever. And I, I did let the family down, I must, I must admit, you know, I was away a lot, and just basic parental duty she couldn't rely on me for because you know I was either too tired or I was or I was away so yeah it was it was very hard to juggle the the, the role of a parent at that time and I didn't do it particularly well I must admit well it's tough hours and yeah you were being like flown interstate from time to time and having regular clients really building up a, a base yeah I did that's right and internationally actually at that at, from the start probably from about I don't know three or four months into it and I started going internationally as well so I, that was really difficult because because that was right around the time that we actually decided that we should separate. So our little family of three became a family of one and two. And I was by myself a lot, very far away from my son. And it was it was really tough. You know, I'd spent several nights just sobbing to myself with a client next to me, you know, without, without letting them see anything like that. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty tough at that time. So not, not the best way to be a father, but... Oh, well, it's done now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I found fascinating about reading your writings was that, you know, you, you talk about this work being the most meaningful job that you'd ever had, but also that it got really hard in the end. Like some of the practical things were hard, weren't they? Just the focus on appearance all the time. How did that go? Focusing on my appearance sort of became a routine and put me into what I phrased as, as Mitch mode. So it was, it was necessary because I would pay attention to all the smallest parts of my body to make myself as perfect as I could. Um... But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was very difficult to sort of just um, juggle the different relationships that I'd, that I'd formed with my really close, regular clients. So that was very challenging um, for emotionally, yeah. Yeah, well, you write how there was, you know, quite a blurring at times with someone who had a, a really full-on degenerative illness and, yep. and you came to care for her quite a lot. Was yep. that something that happened frequently? No, no, I haven't had uh, that sort of thing since the, my my character called Sam in the book. That that started early on in my career and, and progressed for quite a few years after that. So it was that was unusual, but a beautiful story, I do believe. I, I mean, it was it was. I feel incredibly honoured to have met her and been trusted in such a vulnerable time of of her life. Well, that that trust and vulnerability is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the women that came to you, you could see that they were vulnerable in different ways. Some of them had lost partners. Some of them had uh, experienced violence in their partnerships. There were people who'd been single for a long time, people in unsatisfying relationships. How did you handle the responsibility to make sure that you weren't exploiting that emotional territory in Mm. your interactions? I... 
it was it was a bit of a pioneering sort of role that I took on. So there weren't there wasn't any sort of playbook I could go by. All I all I wanted to do was improve their lives, and I I probably blurred the boundaries by being a little bit too available to them and opening myself up a little bit too much to them. But I found that it, it's just the role that I naturally adopted. I would always message, not always message, but you know, I'd check in with them and they'd check in with me, and and. I, I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as exploitative because that sort of work was free. I, I wasn't charging for any of that. I was, I, if anything, I suppose, and towards the end, I came to realise that maybe I was holding them back from moving on. That was my main concern. Well, I guess, I mean, it, the text might have been free beyond the booking, but it's still attached to a kind of transactional relationship as you describe it as well. Yes. And you write at one point, I had to feel an actual affection and form of love in order to make love. Did that make it hard for you as time went on to kind of go, I'm, I need to separate this emotion, that, this connection I feel with my client from the job? If if it, if anything made it harder, it was an inability to make that connection. Once the connection was made with my regulars, it was it was beautiful. It was natural. It was genuine. You know, money did did exchange hands, which always gave it that small boundary. But towards the end, I think the issue was that I I I, I found my emotional bucket was full, so to speak. So I I found it difficult to take on new clients and. To, to get into that caring, nurturing sort of role that enabled me to have genuine, you know, lovely, lovely sex with them. Did you ever find yourself having to decline a booking? I did have to do that a few times, yeah. That was usually as a result of um, after speaking to them on the phone beforehand. I just got a sense that they were probably after something that was a little bit rushed and not really the sort of booking that, that I wanted to have. Some of them were sort of after short sort of, you know, half hour, one hour bookings. And I just sort of gently suggested that possibly I'm not the right uh, escort for them. And, and a lot of the, the other guys would be more than happy to, to see them. You're right too about, you know, the, the depilation <laughs> was mm. a bit of a pain after a while. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> but you also write, there's this phrase that crops up that I was feeling a lot of sadness and despair and that really cut through the writing. Mitch, what was going on there for you? That was during COVID actually and it and often hits me for some reason. I feel like, you know, at the moment we've, we've got a lot of turmoil in the world and I feel it a, a very heavy, heavy sort of force sort of weighing down on me and I, and I tend to sort of pick up on that a lot and I was living alone uh, at that time yeah, during during the COVID lockdowns and things like that but you know I, I, I had to pick myself up when I was able to work to do the job properly and that proved really difficult at times you know I had to just shut off my mind to you know missing my son or what my, my family was doing and, and have to think get in the mindset of a single man who's there just to please the person they're with. So that that challenged me a lot of the time, yeah. How much judgment did you face when you told your friends and then your family about what you're doing? Not too much, actually. It was a bit of a surprise for, for everyone. My friends have been fairly quiet. I sort of, I, I don't see too many of my friends frequently, so it's usually a Facebook sort of interaction here or there. My father was quite intrigued, I think, quite, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say proud, but I think he was intrigued and was, I guess he was proud of me for creating a business and an income based solely on my, my own intellect and my own body. Mum was obviously not happy, not happy at all, but yeah, she, she, she was never rude to me about it or anything like that. It was just something that she, you just didn't discuss really. Uh, but it, it tends to be the sort of wider community that, that loves to judge it really, because they, they just don't know the specifics of what, what the job entails. Well, they will if they read the book. I 
I hope so. There'll be a lot of that in there. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Why did you eventually decide to move on from that work, Mitch? As I mentioned before, I found that I had a core group of ladies that I really, really cared for. And I started questioning whether I was actually doing the right thing by them. And that started, that noise started to get grow louder and louder. And, and I was living by myself still. I was, I was quite lonely. And I just found that I think I had to just quietly exit the industry as well, not so quietly because I'm produced a book about it, but um, (laughs) exit the industry just to sort of move on and, and pursue my future goals. What are those goals? Well, I'd love to, at the moment, I'm actually coaching new older escorts because I think there's a, there's a, a big need for men sort of 40 plus. So I've, I've had a few guys ring up and, and I can tell them sort of what the, what's involved in the industry and the best way to start. Also, I can get a sense of whether I, not that I'm any sort of gatekeeper, but I can get a sense of whether they're suited for the industry, if they're in it for the right right reasons. So what um, happens if you get the sense that they're not? You just tell uh, well, them? Well, I, I still give them advice, but I, you know, I'm not going to say don't do it to anyone, but women are very perceptive and they can tell from bios and uh, photos and things like that who's, who, what sort of intellect they're going, to, they're going to meet and whether it's going to match them, match theirs, sorry. So... Yeah, I think, yeah, that's basically how I'm sort of going at the moment with the coaching, but I'm also doing some sort of therapy in general for for clients who are involved with escorts as well. And, you know, they're trying to juggle their emotions. You know, a lot of them are very deeply entrenched in their lives and they, they feel, you know, they might be getting a little bit you know, out of control. So I've spoken to some ladies doing that as well. Uh, and also just ladies in relationships in general, questioning, you know, their, their husbands and, you know, what, yeah, needing some validation there. So you, you've you entered the counselling field with a qualification or this is just the direction that you're looking to go in? It's the direction I'm going in. As far as actually having a diploma in counselling, I, I, I think what I've learned over the last four and a half years is more than anyone could ever learn it in, in any sort of degree. Obviously, there are certain things I don't know. And if, you know, if I look at a syllabus and I think, well, that would be useful, then for sure, I'd, I'd definitely be looking at studying something like that, like sexology or, or a diploma of counselling or something. But I find I just naturally gravitate towards it. So um, yeah, and I get feedback from the clients and to see if I'm on the right track. And I think I am. And do you feel that the the experience you've had in this line of work has changed the way you have your own relationships now? Oh, definitely, yeah. I've never realised how important honesty is um, for women. And I really, one of my goals is to, to try and reinforce that to the men out there. As, as hard as, as it is to, you know, say things to your partner or to admit th- certain things or to, to tell them how you're feeling, it does, it works wonders. It's just, there's no need to hide for these things, these things and, and women just really appreciate it. And the only way for relationships to move forward is with that honesty. So that's one thing that I've really noticed in relationships since doing the jobs. It sounds like a massive learning curve, this period of your life. Yeah, it was. It was incredible. It it still is, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine, yeah, there would be lots of reflections as as your (laughs) life goes on. Mitch, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about this this big decision, this big pivot that you made on Life Matters today. Thanks for your time. You're so welcome, Hilary. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Mitch Larson is a former escort, a columnist now, among other things, and author of a book called Time for Her, a memoir of true romance. This is Life Matters on RN. 
And our Leap series is all about big decisions. That was certainly a big decision. Fascinating to hear how it played out. I have to say there are quite a few texts uh, saying that they felt that Mitch's decision uh, making and his behaviour was a bit self-centred and they were sad about the effects on his wife and son. I guess we don't know why relationships break up really, do we? We can't see inside them. But there was a strong theme emerging that uh, here's one, for example, why didn't he pour all that feeling and listening and understanding into his own wife, says this text. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.